Book One, Chapters Nineteen and Twenty of the Blue Lagoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. The Blue Lagoon by H. Devere Stackpool. Chapter Nineteen. Starlight on the Foam. Mr. Button saw no more rats, much to Dick's disappointment. He was off the drink. At dawn next day he got up, refreshed by a second sleep, and wandered down to the edge of the lagoon. The opening in the reef faced the east, and the light of the dawn came rippling in with the flood-tide. "'It's a beast I've been,' said the repentant one. "'A brute beast!' He was quite wrong. As a matter of fact, he was only a man, beset and betrayed. He stood for a while, cursing the drink, and them that sells it. Then he determined to put himself out of the way of temptation, pull the bung out of the barrel, and let the contents escape. Such a thought never occurred to him, or if it did was instantly dismissed. For though an old sailor-man may curse the drink, good rum is to him a sacred thing, and to empty half a little barrel of it into the sea would be an act almost equivalent to child-murder. He put the cask into the dinghy and rowed it over to the reef. There he placed it in the shelter of a great lump of coral, and rowed back. Paddy had been trained all his life to rhythmical drunkenness. Four months or so had generally elapsed between his bouts, sometimes six. It all depended on the length of the voyage. Six months now elapsed before he felt even an inclination to look at the rum cask, that tiny dark spot away on the reef. And it was just as well, for during those six months another whale-ship arrived, watered, and was avoided. "'Blister it,' said he. "'The sea here seems to breed whale-ships, and nothing but whale-ships. It's like bugs in a bed. You kill one, and then another comes. Howsomever, we've shut of them for a while.' He walked down to the lagoon edge, looked out at the little dark spot, and whistled. Then he walked back to prepare dinner. That little dark spot began to trouble him after a while. Not it, but the spirit it contained. Days grew long and weary, the days that had been so short and pleasant. To the children there was no such thing as time. Having absolute and perfect health, they enjoyed happiness, as far as mortals can enjoy it. Emmeline's highly strung nervous system, it is true, developed a headache when she had been too long in the glare of the sun. But they were few and far between. The spirit in the little cask had been whispering across the lagoon for some weeks. At last it began to shout. Mr. Button, metaphorically speaking, stopped his ears. He busied himself with the children as much as possible. He made a, another garment for Emmeline, 
and cut Dick's hair with the scissors, a job which was generally performed once in a couple of months. One night, to keep the rum from troubling his head, he told them the story of Jack Doherty and the Mero, the Sea People, which is well known on the western coast. The Mero takes Jack to dinner at the bottom of the sea, and shows him the lobster-pots wherein he keeps the souls of old sailor-men. And then they have dinner, and the Mero produces a big bottle of rum. It was a fatal story for him to remember and recount, for, after his companions were asleep, the vision of the Mero and Jack hobnobbing, and the idea of the jollity of it, rose before him, and excited a thirst for joviality not to be resisted. There were some green coconuts that he had plucked that day, lying in a little heap under the tree, half a dozen or so. He took several of these and a shell, found the dinghy where it was moored to the aoa tree, unmoored her, and pushed off into the lagoon. The lagoon and sky were full of stars. In the dark depths of the water might have been seen phosphorescent gleams of passing fish, and the thunder of the surf on the reef filled the night with its song. He fixed the boat's painter carefully round a spike of coral, and landed on the reef, and, with a shellful of rum and coconut lemonade mixed half and half, he took his perch on a high ledge of coral, from whence a view of the sea and the coral strand could be obtained. On a moonlight night it was fine to sit there and watch the great breakers come in, all marbled and clouded and rainbowed, with spindrift and sheets of spray. But the snow and the song of them under the diffused lights of the stars produced a more indescribably beautiful and strange effect. The tide was going out now, and Mr. Button, as he sat smoking his pipe and drinking his grog, could see bright mirrors here and there where the water lay in rock-pools. When he had contemplated these signs for a considerable time in complete contentment, he returned to the lagoon side of the reef and sat down beside the little barrel. Then, after a while, if you had been standing on the strand opposite, you would have heard scraps of song borne across the quivering water of the lagoon. Blow high, blow low, and so sailed we, sailing down, sailing down on the coast of Barbary. Whether the coast of Barbary in question is that at San Francisco, or the true and proper coast, does not matter. It is an old-time song, and when you hear it, whether on a reef of coral or a granite key, you may feel assured that an old-time sailor-man is singing it, and that the old-time sailor-man is bemused. Presently the dinghy put off from the reef. The skulls broke the starlit waters, and great shaking circles of light made rhythmical answer to the slow and steady creak of the thole-pins against the leather. He tied up to the oa, saw that the skulls were safely shipped, then, breathing heavily, he cast off his boots for fear of waking the children, 
As the children were sleeping more than two hundred yards away, this was a needless precaution, especially as the intervening distance was mostly soft sand. Green coconut juice and rum mixed together are pleasant enough to drink, but they are better drunk separately. Combined, not even the brain of an old sailor can make anything out of them but mist and muddlement, that is to say, in the way of thought. In the way of action, they can make him do a lot. They made Paddy Button swim the lagoon. The recollection came to him all at once, as he was walking up the strand towards the wigwam, that he had left the dinghy tied to the reef. The dinghy was, as a matter of fact, safe and sound tied to the O.R., but Mr. Button's memory told him it was tied to the reef. How he had crossed the lagoon was of no importance at all to him. The fact that he had crossed without the boat, yet without getting wet, did not appear to him strange. He had no time to deal with trifles like these. The dinghy had to be fetched across the lagoon and there was only one way of fetching it. So he came back down the beach to the water's edge, cast down his boots, cast off his coat, and plunged in. The lagoon was wide, but in his present state of mind he would have swum the Hellespont. His figure gone down from the beach, the night resumed its majesty and aspect of meditation. So lit was the lagoon by starshine that the head of the swimmer could be distinguished away out in the midst of circles of light. Also, as the head neared the reef, a dark triangle that came shearing through the water past the palm-tree at the pier. It was the night patrol of the lagoon who had heard in some mysterious manner that a drunken sailor-man was making trouble in his waters. Looking, one listened, hand on heart, for the scream of the arrested one. Yet it did not come. The swimmer, scrambling on to the reef in an exhausted manner, forgetful evidently of the object for which he had returned, made for the rum-cask, and fell down beside it as though sleep had touched him, instead of death. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 The Dreamer on the Reef "'I wonder where Paddy is,' cried Dick next morning. He was coming out of the chaparral, pulling a dead branch after him. He's left his coat on the sand, and the tinder-box in it, so I'll make fire. There's no use waiting. I want my breakfast.' bother!" He trod the dead stick with his naked feet, breaking it into pieces. Emmeline sat on the sand and watched him. Emmeline had two gods of a sort—Paddy Button and Dick. Paddy was almost an esoteric god, wrapped up in the fumes of tobacco and mystery, the god of rolling ships and creaking masts. The masts and vast sail-spaces of the Northumberland were an enduring vision in her mind. The deity who had lifted her from a little boat into this marvellous place, where the birds were coloured and the fish were painted, where life was never dull and the skies scarcely ever grey. 
Dick, the other deity, was a much more understandable personage, but no less admirable as a companion and protector. In the two years and five months of island life he had grown nearly three inches. He was as strong as a boy of twelve, and could scull the boat almost as well as Paddy himself, and light a fire. Indeed, during the last few months Mr. Button, engaged in resting his bones, and contemplating rum as an abstract idea, had left the cooking and fishing and general gathering of food as much as possible to Dick. "'It amuses the creature to pretend he's doing things,' he would say, as he watched Dick delving into the earth to make a little oven, island fashion, for the cooking of fish and what not. "'Come along, Em,' said Dick, piling the broken wood on top of some rotten hibiscus sticks. Give me the tinder-box." He got a spark onto a bit of punk, and then he blew at it, looking not unlike Aeolus as represented on those old Dutch charts that smell of schneidam and snuff, and give one mermaids and angels instead of soundings. The fire was soon sparkling and crackling, and he heaped on sticks in profusion, for there was plenty of fuel, and he wanted to cook breadfruit. The breadfruit varies in size according to age, and in colour according to season. These that Dick was preparing to cook were as large as small melons. Two would be more than enough for three people's breakfast. They were green and knobbly on the outside, and they suggested to the mind unripe lemons rather than bread. He put them in the embers just as you put potatoes to roast, and presently they sizzled and spat little venomous jets of steam. Then they cracked, and the white inner substance became visible. He cut them open and took the core out—the core is not fit to eat—and they were ready. Meanwhile Emmeline, under his directions, had not been idle. There were in the lagoon—there are in several other tropical lagoons I know of—a fish which I can only describe as a golden herring. A bronze herring it looks when landed, but when swimming away down against the background of coral brains and white sand patches it has the sheen of burnished gold. It is as good to eat as to look at, and Emmeline was carefully toasting several of them on a piece of cane. The juice of the fish kept the cane from charring, though there were accidents at times when a whole fish would go into the fire amidst shouts of derision from Dick. She made a pretty enough picture as she knelt, the skirt round her waist looking not unlike a striped bath-towel her small face intent and filled with the seriousness of the job on hand, and her lips puckered out at the heat of the fire. "'It's so hot!' she cried in self-defence, after the first of the accidents. "'Of course it's hot,' said Dick, if you stick to leeward of the fire. How often has Paddy told you to keep off to windward of it?' "'I don't know which is which,' confessed the unfortunate Emmeline who was an absolute failure at everything practical, who could neither row nor fish nor throw a stone, and who, though they had been on the island twenty-eight months or so, could not even swim. "'You mean to say,' said Dick, "'that you don't know where the wind comes from?' 
"'Yes, I know that.' "'Well, that's to windward.' "'I didn't know that.' "'Well, you know it now.' "'Yes, I know it now.' "'Well, then, come to windward of the fire. Why didn't you ask the meaning of it before?' "'I did,' said Emmeline. "'I asked Mr. Button one day, and he told me a lot about it. He said if he was to spit to windward, and a person was to stand to leeward of him, he'd be a fool. And he said if a ship went too much to leeward, she went on the rocks. But I didn't understand what he meant. Dicky, I wonder where he is." "'Paddy!' cried Dick, pausing in the act of splitting open a breadfruit. Echoes came from amidst the coconut trees, but nothing more. "'Come on,' said Dick. "'I'm not going to wait for him. He may have gone to fetch up the night-lines—they sometimes put down night-lines in the lagoon—and fallen asleep over them.' Now, though Emmeline honoured Mr. Button as a minor deity, Dick had no illusions at all upon the matter. He admired Paddy because he could knot and splice and climb a coconut-tree and exercise his sailor-craft in other admirable ways. But he felt the old man's limitations. They ought to have had potatoes now, but they had eaten both potatoes and the possibility of potatoes when they consumed the content of that half-sack. Young as he was, Dick felt the absolute thriftlessness of this proceeding. Emmeline did not. She never thought of potatoes though she could have told you the colour of all the birds on the island. Then again the house wanted rebuilding, and Mr. Button said every day he would set about seeing after it to-morrow, and on the morrow it would be to-morrow. The necessities of the life they led were a stimulus to the daring and active mind of the boy, but he was always being checked by the go-as-you-please methods of his elder. Dick came of the people who made sewing-machines and typewriters. Mr. Button came of a people notable for ballads, tender hearts, and potheen. That was the main difference. "'Paddy!' again cried the boy, when he had eaten as much as he wanted. "'Hello! Where are you?' They listened, but no answer came. A bright-hued bird flew across the sand-space. A lizard scuttled along the glistening sand. The reef spoke, and the wind in the tree-tops. But Mr. Button made no reply. "'Wait,' said Dick. He ran through the grove toward the Aoa, where the dinghy was moored. Then he returned. "'The dinghy is all right,' he said. "'Where on earth can he be?' "'I don't know,' said Emmeline upon whose heart a feeling of loneliness had fallen. "'Let's go up the hill,' said Dick. "'Perhaps we'll find him there.' They went uphill through the wood, past the watercourse. Every now and then Dick would call out, and echoes would answer. There were quaint, moist-voiced echoes amongst the trees, or a bevy of birds would take to flight. The little waterfall gurgled and whispered and the great banana leaves spread their shade. "'Come on,' said Dick, when he had called again without receiving a reply. 
They found the hilltop, and the great boulder stood casting its shadow in the sun. The morning breeze was blowing, the sea sparkling, the reef flashing, the foliage of the island waving in the wind like the flames of a green-flamed torch. A deep swell was spreading itself across the bosom of the Pacific. Some hurricane, away beyond the navigators or Gilberts, had sent this message, and was finding its echo here, a thousand miles away, in the deep thunder of the reef. Nowhere else in the world could you get such a picture, such a combination of splendour and summer, such a vision of freshness and strength and the delight of morning. It was the smallness of the island, perhaps, that closed the charm and made it perfect. Just a bunch of foliage and flowers, set in the midst of the blowing wind and sparkling blue. Suddenly Dick, standing beside Emmeline on the rock, pointed with his finger to the reef near the opening. "'There he is!' cried he. End of chapter 20 so sailed we, sailing down, sailing down on the coast of Barbary.